AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. I have nightmares about this. I have nightmares that she's asking for help and I can't help her, that she has been found after all these years and she's alive. And I don't know, I just want to know what happened to her. That not knowing is hard. Picturing the fear that she must have been in when whoever took her, took her and and did whatever they did. I can only imagine the terror that she was going through. And in the last, you know, the last thoughts that she was thinking when she died. It's horrific for anyone to go through that. And then, I don't know, it's just horrific. Beneath the folksy, postcard-perfect surface of any small American town lies a hint of evil few can imagine actually exists within their peaceful lives. Most never come face to face with it, and yet everyone understands they are, perhaps, closer than they might think to being swallowed up by it. Having a loved one go missing creates a grim reality, forcing family members to experience the worst life can throw at you. Their only weapon of defense within that struggle? Hope. I've always carried hope. No matter how long it's been, an unsolved murder leaves behind a quiet sorrow and an intense gravity. In many ways, an incredible sense of lost identity seeps into everyday life. It's what some refer to as forever pain. I think the one thing about Dana's case is that Benton County still to this day enjoys a very low crime rate. It is extremely rare for it to be a, a stranger, a stranger abduction, or at least not immediately understandable what happened, right? People don't get kidnapped off parking lots. I would imagine then people didn't lock their cars. They left their keys in the car at the grocery store. I mean, they left their doors open. And so not only for that to happen to a, a young girl, but also for it to be not immediately known what happened creates fear and panic in folks. I would say it's not an overstatement to say that's an earth-shattering event in terms of crime in Benton County. Murder is such a profound tragedy, it can take a lifetime to not only understand what happened to a victim, 
but to process what their loved ones went through. It's a part of the true crime experience rarely given more than a cursory glance. The certainty of living with such enormous loss. Murder, moreover, divides families and sometimes puts neighbors and even friends at odds. I'm going to tell you, it can go either way. I have seen small communities that it'll bring them together. It will bring folks that haven't been together with the same mindset. And so they start to kind of look out for each other. It becomes almost like a natural disaster would. They tend to talk. They tend to interact. The division is gone. That's one, one thing that I have actually seen happen in smaller communities. And I can really only speak to a smaller community. And so I would say that it, it sometimes can go either way. I've seen it bring a community together and they look out for each other and, and they're concerned and they start to talk. And then certainly I've seen it do the other side where you have two battlegrounds. Those varying factors, however, can be an asset to a cold case investigation. And as I would soon learn, detectives sometimes play both sides against each other. I think you get more from a community when they're divided because everybody wants their opinion heard and they want to explain why they feel the way they do and, and they, they want somebody to listen and acknowledge that their opinion counts on this. So I've received more confidential informants, people then off of the street, on patrol that would say, hey, you know, I know you're working on this and, and I knew that family or I've seen that family or what have you and I just need you to know this. And then they'll want to recount any story that they may have had or heard. The fact is, murder changes everything. And unsolved murder magnifies that change. And when murders start to multiply, all hell breaks loose. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and author of more than 40 true crime books. This is season four of Paper Ghosts, The Ozarks. I arrived in Arkansas during the spring of 2023, there to look into a three decades old cold case, a young woman, Dana Stidham, who'd gone missing on a beautiful midsummer day in 1989. Hi, Christy. How are you doing? Good to meet you. Benton County, Arkansas is a community of about 300,000 people and literally built by Walmart which is headquartered in Bentonville. One of my first contacts was a woman who knew more about Dana Stidham than most anyone else. My name is Christy Smith. I am Dana Stidham's cousin. We grew up together our whole lives. She was a year older than I was. We were pretty much inseparable. Our, our mothers are sisters. They were together all the time. We were together all the time. She was more of a sister than a cousin. At 18 years old, during the summer of 1989, Dana was at that crossroads stage of life we all face in our youth, looking forward to the future after graduating from Gravit High School, deciding which path to take. We would always go swimming together, and we went camping one year in Missouri. And while we were camping, we went to Whitewater. Our parents dropped us off at Whitewater while they went shopping. And I remember we got so sunburned, but we were determined we were not going to leave early. We were going to stay no matter how red we got. And then the rest of the camping trip, we were just miserable because we were so burned. But we still, we still managed to have fun. And what kind of kid was she? Oh, she, she was good. She was just like any kid. We were, we were rambunctious when we wanted to be, well-behaved when we chose. She was pretty quiet. When she was a child, 10, 12, that area, what did she talk about she wanted to do in life? Oh, at 10 and 12, we really, we really didn't have any plans in life. I don't really know that we ever even talked about the future at that age. You lived in the moment. 
Yeah, we did. <laughs> we lived in the moment and just um, took every day as it was and played and enjoyed our lives. And Dana and Christy were raised in Gravit, Arkansas, in the northwest corner of the state, quite close to the Missouri border. Gravit had a population of just 1,500 back then. Gravit was not much different than it is now. Very small, very close-knit community. We had a very small school system in the last several years that has grown tremendously, but but it was very small. We did kindergarten through sixth was, was all one school, and then eighth and ninth was junior high, 10th through 12th was high school. Very small, had a community swimming pool during the summer. Her dad would, after we cleaned the house, because I stayed with him during while my parents worked, after we cleaned the house, then he would take us and drop us at the city pool, and we would slim, swim and probably from about one till five, and every day, that's what we would do. Kids love water. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> Still love water. Again, in the summers, um, they lived in Hiawassee, so at the time they lived in Hiawassee, which... Have you been to Hiawassee? Very small. There's one Dairy Queen there at the end of the dirt road that she lived on. So we would, on a good day, we would walk to the Dairy Queen and have lunch, always bring her dad something back. So it was just, you know, just fun. Just kids enjoying life and having fun. Dana Stidham was enthusiastic about that summer of 1989. Just after high school, she'd moved out of her parents' home and into a small apartment in Centerton, with her 21-year-old brother, Larry, along with two of her closest friends. She was spreading her wings for the first time in her life. From what we know, and there's a lot of stuff that we don't know, but from what we know, she was at her parents' house doing laundry. It was her and her dad in the Hiawassee area. It was around two-something in the afternoon. We know that Dana placed a phone call to a friend, and that was around... 2.14 p.m., and she talked to that friend for approximately 20 minutes. So we're talking, I think the phone records show that disconnected around 2.35 p.m. So she leaves sometimes shortly after that to go to the store. Her dad wasn't feeling well. She needed some laundry detergent, so she leaves the house. We know she stops and gets gas. She gets like $5 worth of gas, writes a check for, I think, 10 and gets like $3 cash back or something to that effect. So short trip to get some gas proceeds on from there to what was then known as Phillips Grocery, which is probably from her house. Back then, you're talking about 15 minutes to get there tops. A dozen or more people saw Dana at the Phillips that day. They knew her because she used to work at the same store. We talked to a couple of those people. We know that she checked out at 317 because the receipt is time-stamped, so it kind of shows. Now, we can't say for certain that she left the store, left the parking lot at 317. We know she checked out at 317. She's seen in the parking lot talking to a guy. There's individuals that saw her in the parking lot. Older gentleman, we don't really know how old. That's Hunter Portray a current lieutenant with the Benton County Sheriff's Office. What stands out to me in Lieutenant Petray's comments is that there's no solid evidence to prove Dana actually left the parking lot alone. No CCTV watching her drive out. There's only an assumption, based on what happens over the next 24 hours, that she left the parking lot by herself. Secondly, while at the store, she interacted with several people who knew her. I stood in the parking lot of the Phillips with a woman who used to work there with Dana and was there that last July afternoon Dana was seen. It's called Harps now, but the parking lot, although long ago repaved, is basically set up the same. It's two-tiered, one level overlooking the other. So, you could literally park on the upper level, which butts up against a hill and woods and quietly stalk the lower level, watching people come and go in and out of the store. Here's a former co-worker of Dana's. She had an aura about her. She was beautiful, but she just was just so sweet all the time. People were drawn to her. Really? Yeah, everyone loved her. Dana was a beautiful young woman, which is important in the story because she had several young men 
as well as several older men chasing after her. Her brunette hair flowed past her shoulders, feathered and fluffed high. After all, it was the 80s. Petite, Dana was 5'2 and about 105 pounds. So what was it like around here back then in, in 89? Well, there was a lot of construction going on. And so our store would make a lot of sandwiches and food for the construction guys that would come in. We were pretty busy do, uh, doing that. A lot of growth. There's a lot of new people coming in, a lot of growth. Um, so it was really secluded, the parking lot then? Yeah. I wouldn't want to be out here by myself. I asked Lieutenant Petre what old meant in terms of the gentleman seen talking to Dana in the parking lot the afternoon she went missing. 50 could be old. It's all relative to the individual that you're talking to, the witness. So we don't know. And that's one of those things, like there's things we know and there's things we don't know. That's one of the things that we don't really know. It's also kind of not baffling, but discouraging that she's supposedly seen leaving, but it's unknown as far as what direction she's leaving. Now, if you know Harps, you can basically go north, south, east, west from there. Like it's not cornered to where you have to go one direction. So again, that complicates the investigation because we don't know when she leaves that parking lot, which direction she goes. But we're pretty sure that she leaves the parking lot. Here's where it gets complicated. There's an individual and his wife that sees her there at Phillips out in the, in the parking lot. They later, that same day, see her vehicle sitting on the side of the road south of Phillips, about a mile south, sitting by the, what's known as the Bella Vista Museum. This location will become very important to law enforcement within 24 hours. And a vital piece of this puzzle as I begin to unpack the early narrative of facts behind what happened. Parked on the side of the road, there's a white van that's supposedly parked in front of it. There's two males, one guy squatted down by the side of the car looking at the tire. Supposedly he had a scraggly beard, mustache. It gets more interesting. There's a guy looking at the tire. There's also a female and another guy on the other side of the car talking. This guy positively identifies this girl as being Dana. At that time, he doesn't know of anything. So later on, he comes back. Both vehicles are gone. Okay. Sometime between 3 and 5, that same day, the 25th, there's another individual that sees a truck parked behind a car. Two males and one female. Again, same two males, one female. Driver's side tire looks flat. We know that Dana had a low tire, so that kind of matches. This guy also identifies her as Dana. Dana's cousin and best friend, Christy Smith, remembers the events of that day 25 years ago as if it all happened yesterday. She goes to the house and she is going there to do laundry. They don't have a washer and dryer at their apartment, so she goes over there to do her laundry. Her dad asks her if she can run to the grocery store and get him some medication and, and a few things that he needs from the store. Of course, she's always willing to do anything for her dad. She says, that's fine. She'll do that. She goes to the store, and that's the last time anybody saw her. And when do you first hear about it? Later that evening, or I would probably say it's five or six, after Georgia got home from work and Lawrence had told her, well, Dana's went to the store and she's never come back. Then Georgia calls me, wants to know if I've heard from her, calls her son, see if he's heard from her. None of us have heard from her. So that's when we start getting nervous because she didn't, she, if she was going to the store for her dad, she would go and she would come back with what he needed. She would finish her laundry, she would go home, and, and I believe she had a date that night. So she would have come home and, and gotten ready for what her plans were. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. 
Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Whenever you begin to reinvestigate an unsolved crime, particularly a cold case, victimology is one of your primary tasks. You have to get a clear picture of who the victim is, what they were doing, within the context of what happened and when. Who were her friends? The crowd she hung around with? How was her home life? Boyfriends? Ex-boyfriends? I spoke to a lot of people who knew Dana Stidham personally at the time she went missing. I obtained hundreds of pages of documents, including interviews with friends, family, and others at the time the case broke, along with exclusive audio, which you will hear throughout this season. When you're young, nobody knows you better than your best friend. Christy Smith identified intimate details about Dana and her family no one else could. Here, for example, she talks about Dana's parents. Tell me about Lawrence and Georgia. They um been together since Georgia was 14. I think Lawrence was probably 16. Very, very young couple, you know, had their moments. Married and divorced several times, but only to each other. They never married anyone else besides each other. They had a few miscarriages before they were able to conceive their son and carry him to term. So he was a nice surprise. And then the fact that they were able to do it again with Dana was to them kind of a miracle. They were very proud of their kids and very attached to their kids, very protective. Georgia was, again, you know, just a young young mother. And Lawrence was a young father. And Lawrence was great. Sadly, Dana's father, Lawrence, passed away in 1999 at the age of 50. How was Dana around them? Dana was very good. She was spoiled. She could do whatever she wanted. And as she got older in junior high and high school, and we all did things that we probably shouldn't have done in high school, but sometimes her her mom chose to not believe that Dana was doing the things everybody else was doing. But in the back of her mind, she knew that she was. And Lawrence, she had Lawrence, you know, wrapped around her little finger. He just thought she was his, the world. She wasn't in any of the clubs at school. She was very popular, lots of friends, didn't participate in the club so much. She was in dance, but not not at school. It was a separate dance class that she would do. She wasn't in sports, into boys. Every teenage girl is into boys. And did she have a boyfriend in high school, one boyfriend? Her senior year, she had one that she was more deep into the relationship, I think. She had dated several people, and she dated a gentleman that she worked with at Harps. You know, throughout high school, she had different boyfriends. One of the football players, she dated him for a while. Dana had quit working there about three weeks before her disappearance and started a new job at Kmart in Rogers, Arkansas, where she had been working for only three days as of July 25th, 1989. 
And so what did she talk about in high school that she wanted to do after high school? She talked about wanting to go to college or, you know, she would talk about wanting to, to live somewhere different and getting married and, and kind of just doing the married life. She didn't have any really big plans. Was she into art? She was. She did like to draw. She liked to paint. Her dad did a lot of woodwork, so she would draw pictures and paint on the woodwork. And it wasn't like the paintings and and that sort of art. It was just kind of like a hobby. And so high school graduation comes, Mm -hmm. and she moves in with Larry, her brother. Mm -hmm. Well, she lived with me for a while. I got married very young at 16, and my husband and I and, and our little girl, we lived halfway between Gravit and Hiawassee. And she, like every, everybody, is ready to get out of their parents' house. So she moved in with us for a few months. We didn't have a spare room, so she brought her day bed and put it in the living room. And, and that's where she would sleep. And, and then, you know, we would all just hang out. And, and did she work at the time? Um, she was working at Harps at the time. And she did that for, for a few months. And then Larry and his girlfriend... They were looking for an apartment and couldn't afford it on their own. So they all decided, Dana, Larry, and Dana's friend, all decided that they would just get one together so they could all split the rent and make it more affordable for all of them. She wanted, you know, the extra freedom, wanted to have her own room and all that kinds of stuff. Dana had July 25th off from Kmart. Working had always been important to her since she was 16. And she had always maintained a job of some sort. Her parents, you know, didn't have a lot of money, and and Dana was she was fancy and she liked the preppy clothes and and all that stuff. So she knew if she wanted that in a car and gas money, and she had work. Did she ever talk about or mention that anybody was being weird around her, or stalking her, or anything like that? Um, the only two things I remember was she would talk about the gentleman at the store, the older guy. Yes, the elder guy worked in produce or meat or something. I can't remember. What would she say about him? She would just say that he would tell dirty jokes or, or talk dirty to him and things like that. Mm-hmm. And did she ever talk about him following her out to the parking lot or anything like that? No. There was a police officer that, officer that she told me once that, that scared her a lot. She said that he would stop her for random reasons. He was married, and he would, he would try to get her to go out with him. And that, that she had told me before that that scared her. This was a piece of information that obviously needed to be explored more closely. There was also a report Dana had claimed to be pregnant near the time she went missing. Could these two pieces of information be connected? I was intrigued when Christy told me that Dana had a date that night, mainly because the timing of her heading out to the store near 3 p.m., and then driving straight back to her parents' house to give her dad the medicine and grab her laundry all fit into that timeline. But Dana never made it back. By 9.15 p.m. on the night of Dana's disappearance, her brother Larry Stidham senses something is off, and so he calls the Benton County Sheriff's Office to say he and his family are concerned about her. She hadn't returned after going out to the store on an errand. It's been almost 10 hours. This is not something Dana would have done normally. I had wanted to interview Larry, of course, but he had passed away at the age of 47 in 2015. Larry gives a description of Dana's car so the Bella Vista Police and Benton County Sheriff's Office can begin searching for it. He says she's driving a gray, Plymouth Horizon hatchback. The Sheriff's Department puts out a bolo, be on the lookout, and officers on the road conducting normal nightly patrols are now actively searching for a gray Plymouth Horizon. So I think it was actually Larry that called and spoke to Danny Varner at the time, who was a sergeant, filed the missing persons report, gives a vehicle description. Less than an hour later, I think, 940 something is when the bolos put out that gray plymouth larry described there was an issue larry gave the wrong description of the vehicle again not intentional but it didn't help he called back an hour hour and a half later 10 something and corrected that 
Varner called Bella Vista, let all the patrolmen know up there, hey, we had the, the wrong description of the vehicle. Here's the correct description. Dana was actually driving a gray 1984 four-door Dodge Omni, which was the sister vehicle to the Horizon. An easy mistake to make. By this time, around 10.30 p.m., Larry and many family members and friends are themselves out driving around, particularly north and south on Route 71, the main thoroughfare running by the Phillips. The family knew something was wrong. Dana was independent and would go off on her own from time to time, but she would not blow her father off if he needed medicine or leave her laundry at her parents, especially if she had a date. At the very least, she would stop at a payphone to call someone and let them know where she was. They're making phone calls, talking to friends. Hey, have you seen Dana? Nobody's seen her or her car. Larry specifically says that, you know, we drove up 71 to the state line. We drove back. We did not see her car. I went back to something Christy told me. That date Dana had scheduled. Was she running late and decided to stop at her apartment, change, and head out on her date without telling anyone? If she was spotted 1.3 miles south of Phillips on Route 71, near the Bella Vista Museum, with a possible flat tire, between what would have been approximately 3.25 and 5 p.m., she would have been heading in the direction of the apartment she shared with Larry and her girlfriends. The flat tire could have set her back. Moreover, who was Dana going out with that night? Had anyone tried tracking the guy down to interview him? Turns out it was an older dude whose family owned a farm in Hiwassee. He still lives there. Parents are gone, but he, he's taken over the farm. and He's a little bit older than us, and it was just a one-time date thing. They'd never been out before. Dana's family calls the guy, and he claims she never showed up. He's also got an alibi. He's been home all night with his family waiting on her. And so they file the missing person report, and you all are driving around, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Are you driving up and down 71? Uh-huh. We, we drove everywhere we could think of. My first thought was, did she have an accident? Did she go off of the side of the road in a ravine or something, and nobody can see her car? So we take the normal routes that she would have taken to go to the store, um, looking for her car or anything that we, we might find, and we, don't, we can't find anything. And you don't see her car? Right. No. Mm-mm. Nowhere. So Dana's family is out searching for her, and they drive north and south on Route 71, which Dana would have had to take in either direction, but don't see her car anywhere. Family didn't see it. You know, you got a state trooper. People looking for it. it. Just not there. And we know that she was supposed to meet an individual and uh, she never showed. So all this is adding up that something's not right. Like she didn't just go somewhere. Something's not right. She's missing. Vehicle's missing. Nobody's heard from her. As friends, family, and law enforcement are out looking for her, the first major break comes in the form of a phone call. Someone had called a general store in Hiwassee a small local grocery that Dana had once worked at. It was 4 p.m., about 45 minutes after she left the Phillips parking lot nine miles away. The caller is a young woman, and she says this, quote, tell him I really want to go home. And that's it. But then, a second call to that same small general store. Around 11 o'clock that night, if you remember, I told you that somebody had called the store the store around four something. Somebody calls at 11 and says that Dana's dead and Mike knows what happened to her. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. 
With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. At the time that second call was made to the general store in Hiawassee, Dana's brother Larry Stidham was out driving around, anxious and desperate to find any sign of his younger sister. Two miles or so up the road from the Phillips Grocery in Bella Vista, Larry turned off Route 71 and onto Wellington Road and began driving slowly, searching. I believe Larry was driving around and he went up the road and found some of her clothes that had been in her car. So then he called me because he couldn't be sure that they were hers. So he called me and I went, my husband and I went up there and looked and verified that they were clothes of hers. At that point in time, it's gone from, okay, we don't think something's quite right to there's some worry going on now because now we've, we've found some of her clothing. Clothing she was wearing? clothing that she had in the car. So they find the clothing, they pick it up, which is not ideal, but at that time, nobody knows about DNA, man. It just doesn't cross anybody's mind. Again, it's just a product of the time that they were in. Picks it up, realize, hey, this is Dana's clothing. We, you know, we got to report this. They report it. The sheriff's office goes out there, collects the clothing, and then just nothing, man. You know, Dana hasn't been heard from. She hasn't shown up. Nobody's seen her. Everybody's panicking. Everybody's being interviewed. Hey, when's the last time you saw her? You know, who was she with? All that type of stuff was going on. To now it's like, okay, we think we're pretty sure foul play. That older employee from Phillips that Dana had once mentioned was perpetually inappropriate. A guy several folks I spoke to referred to as a pervert. Well... Lo and behold, he lived in a small house just off Wellington Road, near where Dana's clothing was found. Here's someone who worked with the guy, a woman who doesn't want to be identified. He was weird, (laughs) just creepy. He was a tall, older man, probably 6'3", 6'4", kind of gaunt. And he was like in his 50s, I think, back then. And I was in my early 20s. But, oh, everyone in, in our department talked about how they did, didn't like him. He gave them the creeps. Did he say things to the women or did he do things or was he just like a creepy dude? He was just a creepy dude. But I do know that some of the girls felt he was kind of handsy, got in your space. Just inappropriate behavior. The Benton County Sheriff's Office had interviewed several people at the Phillips that evening, including a young man who worked there and had once dated Dana, a relationship that did not end on good terms. While police are talking to him, this older man, the pervert, his name comes up during the interview. So, you know, he talked about another individual that worked there, a guy with the last name of... The dirty old man. 
Yeah, from reports from people uh, that were interviewed, yeah, there was an issue with harassing the females that worked there. There was also an individual that supposedly caught him out in his truck masturbating, reading a dirty magazine. But it's real interesting because he, he lived at that time less than a half mile off of Wellington. With the growing list of suspects within that first night, Bella Vista Police and the Benton County Sheriff's Office are specifically looking for Dana's car. The thought is, find the car, find Dana, or at least begin to figure out what might be going on. Law enforcement, family, and townspeople are driving north and south on Route 71, snaking in and out of side roads, but nobody sees a car even remotely resembling Dana's. The call that came into the Hiwassee General Store at 4 p.m. and the one later on that night felt particularly important. There was something striking about those calls. Remember, this is 1989. There's no instant reporting of anything. The only people who know Dana is missing are those involved in searching for her. So whoever makes that call knows she's missing. I hate to assume anything um, because I've been doing this job for too long, but it's a red flag. Like it, it, it screams whoever made that phone call actually had some type of knowledge about something going on. And then you combine it with the supposed phone call. It makes your skin crawl. And then what happens the next day? So the next morning, there's a lady named Karen Myers. She was a sergeant there with Bella Vista. Lived just across the state line. She was on her way to work that next morning around 6, 6.30 in the morning. And she sees this vehicle on the side of the road there at Wellington in the southbound lane facing south. And there was another vehicle that was parked behind it. What kind of vehicle? So... Initially, it was possibly a small truck or a larger car. Later, it changed to, again, small truck or possibly a station wagon. She doesn't know at that point in time that anything's wrong. She proceeds on to work. And in fact, I think she made some type of comment of, oh, the fishing must be good in that area. So she proceeds on to work. And it's from what I understand is like, Those vehicles are there, but there's really nobody outside the vehicles that she notices. She just notices the vehicles. So she proceeds on to work. Later on, she starts thinking she goes back and runs the tag, the license plate. At that point in time, we know for sure that it's Dana's vehicle. And then all hell kind of breaks loose from there. She contacts sheriff's office, Sidoriak, Barner. They go up there and they process the vehicle. Danny Varner, who went to school with Dana's parents, and Mike Zadoriak, are the two sheriff's office detectives now taking control of the investigation. What they find when they look at Dana's car begins to tell them that this case might not have the outcome everyone is hoping for. Keys are in the ignition. Vehicle is unlocked. Driver's side window is halfway down. Rear tire is low, but not completely flat, drivable. And what I find to be very important is the driver's seat was adjusted, pushed back for a much taller person. So Dana wasn't the last person to drive the vehicle. The car is parked on Route 71, heading south toward the Phillips. Just north of this area, in the opposite direction, is the Missouri border. If you drove down Wellington Road toward Route 71, this area where Dana's car is found would be directly across the north side of 71, a median, then the south side of 71. What's significant is that scores of people, police, and Dana's family members traveled by this area all throughout the previous night and early morning, and no one reported seeing any vehicle. Now it's there with a low tire? Like somebody let the air out of the tire. Maybe. We know from the family that the tire did have a slow leak. That was later confirmed. So there's the receipt from Phillips that's in the car with the timestamp on it from the day prior. But 
the groceries, the Alka-Seltzer, the sugar, the laundry detergent is not in the car. Again, there's a lot of different theories about why was that not in the car? Did she go somewhere, take that out? Then something happened. Did she stop for somebody? They give her a ride. She take them with her. Again, like I said at the beginning, these are some of the unknown things that we just don't know. But all in all, the vehicle, it doesn't appear that any kind of struggle took place. It's disheveled, but we know from talking to some of her friends that, you know, if she had a drink, she finished the drink, you know, she'd throw it on the floorboard or, you know, just normal clutter. Any bottles or cans or anything found in the car? There was a chip bag, a Muncho's chip bag that we took. Again, could have been hers, could have been somebody else. Well, we sent fingerprints down and no fingerprints have ever matched that chip bag. But the groceries itself, they were not in the vehicle. Her purse and stuff was not in the vehicle. But again, the keys were in the vehicle and it was unlocked, which was, according to the family, not common practice, something that she would have done, you know. It's unusual. And how is the family responding to this finding? Well, from the time that she went missing that previous night, they're, they're distraught. You know, they know, um, you know, and I don't want to speak for them, but sure. if you read through the reports and stuff, you know that they know that it's not good. The situation is not good. One, because she would have come back on her own that day, and she didn't. And then we hear that they found her car at Bella Vista. And that's, that's when it really hit me that something was not right because she would never just abandon her car on the side of the road. She lived for that car. So she wouldn't just leave it. And, and if something would have happened, she would have called one of us because we would, all, we, we would have helped her in any way. We would have came and got her no matter what time of night it was. But we hadn't heard from her. And you, you all had driven by that area where the car was found and you didn't see the car. And then all of a sudden it shows up. Yes, so what are you being told by law enforcement? Well, all that we were told was that they had driven that highway throughout the night and they hadn't seen it. And then at 6 o'clock that morning or something, an officer drove by. And once she got to work and heard about Dana missing, she remembered seeing the car on her way into work. And that's when they went back and found her car there. And so what happens next? Well, I'm not sure. I know that they went, the Lawrence and Larry went to where the car was while Mike Sidoriak and Danny Varner were out there doing, you know, forensics on the car, whatever they did. And um, they just kind of stood by the sidelines and, and watched what was going on. Then they towed the car into the, to the police department or to the impound. Still, that phone call to the general store near 11 p.m. seems so important. Dana's dead, and Mike knows what happened to her. Who is Mike? Did Dana ever date or even know anyone named Mike? You guys have no idea who Mike is. Well, initially we didn't, but later on we did. There was a Mike that was associated with that store, whose parents owned that store. So... Another thing that complicates the case is you've got three or four different possible scenarios. And then you've got all of these people that supposedly swear that they saw her that day, you know, south of the center, a van, a truck. No, it's a station wagon, maybe. Mike had access to a truck. Had access to his dad's truck. There was one more important piece of information the sheriff's office obtained that following morning. Mike, they now knew, was a classmate of Dana's and had reportedly been infatuated with her and she'd routinely rejected his advances. And the sheriff's office learned that Mike had been out all night long. He was seen in his father's truck driving around Bella Vista on Route 71 as late as 3 a.m. And his alibi, that he was with a girlfriend all night in another town, the Benton County Sheriff's Office spoke to her, and she says she never saw him. Coming up next on Paper Ghosts, the Ozarks. You can actually put him in the store the day of Dana's disappearance. So you can put him with Dana right before she disappeared. It wasn't there very long. I was supposed to meet some people, so I stopped there and 
did a little squirrel hunting and walked around a little bit instead. And as I was walking out, I saw in the dry creek bed and saw a skull and some rib bones. Who is this? Are you ready to play? What do you want? Why? Why are you calling me if you don't even know who I am? Thanks a lot. Do you know who I am? No. You don't know who I am, then why are you calling me? Paper Ghost Season 4 is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps. Script consulting by Rose Bocci. Sound design by Matt Russell. Executive production by Catherine Law and audio editing and mixing by Brandon Dickert. Series theme, number 442, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Thomas Mooney. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.